Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Once Bitten Show. If this is your first time of joining, you have picked an absolute beauty to start off your Once Bitten journey and your journey into the Bitcoin rabbit hole and what is wrong with our monetary system of today. Alex Gladstein is the Chief Strategy Officer for the Human Rights Foundation. He is an unapologetic Bitcoin maximalist and a pleb at heart. His article is incredible. It is titled Structural Adjustment. How the IMF and World Bank repress poor countries and funnel their resources to rich ones. This article, as we talk about in this show, he's going to turn it into a book and well done, Alex. This is by far and away one of the best articles, written pieces about Bitcoin. It's a standout piece that everybody should get very, very familiar with. Read it once, twice, three times. It doesn't matter. Listen to Guy Swan read it to you. Get it into your brain. So this will give you a toolkit as well when you are talking to your friends and family when you're trying to orange pill them and they just throw up these nonsensical arguments back at you this is a toolkit for you you can start exposing what's really going on and what's wrong with the financial legacy system that we live under right now now before we get into the show please show some support to the show sponsors they are swanbitcoin.com they have a stacking surface they have an app they have financial advice service for uh, high net worth individuals and companies and financial advisors and you can now also switch your ira those across the pond you know what i'm talking about into bitcoin just give swan a call reach out to me and i can put you in direct touch with anybody from the team there similar service in europe relay r-e-l-a-i.ch huge news from them they've just got funding this is going to really start picking up for relay now they've got a bunch of very exciting things coming out download the app start stacking they also have a white glove service and julian's going to be coming back on the show in uh, in a month's time to talk about what's going on at relay coin corner similar story you can dca or you can smash by they serve the uk and europe and they are lightning enabled. You can withdraw straight to your bolt card and use your bolt card in shops and services that accept Bitcoin. Hoddle Hoddle have you covered for your KYC free peer-to-peer global trading platform. Any currency you like, just switch it into Bitcoin. You will find a trading partner, I am sure. And if you want to get to the Baltic Honey Badger Conference, they run that the first weekend of September. If you want to up your your privacy on your existing stack, consider wasabiwallet.io. Download the software, hit a receive wallet, write down your words, keep them safe, run some satoshis through it, watch the magic happen as the coin join just literally happens right there in front of your eyes, and then move it onto your hardware wallet, your signing device, and you can get the Bitbox 02 Bitcoin only hardware edition from shiftcrypto.ch forward slash bitten that will get you a 5% discount with the code BITTEN. 
get to a conference and download Orange Pill app. And here is Alex Gladstone. All right, we're recording. Alex, good to see you again, man. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course. All right, Lauren, what do you have? What's the first question for Alex? Um, what is the IMF? What is the IMF? It's a good question. The uh, IMF is uh, an acronym that stands for the International Monetary Fund. It, it was an institution set up by the U.S. and the Allies uh, in the closing years of World War II uh, to help uphold uh, a new monetary order for the world. Um, and its uh, founding mission and role uh, was to be the international lender of last resort so that if any uh, significant trading country faced uh, import-export crisis and could no longer afford to participate in the international markets, that instead of um, that country kind of seizing up and becoming cut off, uh, there could be a bailout and that country could get some new credit and continue to participate in the markets. So the initial design of the IMF was to avoid the uh, problems of the 1930s when uh, countries basically, um, uh, many of them became kind of autarkic or kind of uh, self-sovereign and you had like a breakdown in international trade and you had competitive currency devaluations, etc. cetera. Uh, the goal of the IMF was to keep everything uh, well-oiled and um, to bail out countries where they failed so that the whole system could keep going and so that there could be as much trade as possible. So that's the IMF. Sounds like a good thing, right? Mm, no. <laughs> it does. It actually does. It sounds like a good thing. That's what we were tricked into believing. What 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 do you think? Do you want do you want like the full explanation or is that <laughs> is that sufficient? What what's going through your mind? Well, Mummy had a good question as well. Like she asked about the World Bank, right? Yeah. You know, like, what is the World Bank? Well, the World Bank is basically a bank. <laughs> <laughs> it seems crazy, though, doesn't it, to think about like that the whole world has a bank? What do you think, Alex? Yeah, well, I mean, again, uh, the initial design for the World Bank wasn't that crazy. Um, like the initial concept I just explained for the IMF doesn't sound that crazy. Um, the world had just gone through uh, a horrific global war, uh, essentially between the major creditor nations. Um, the former empires fought each other um, and it dev absolutely devastated their economies. And the World Bank's essentially, as you say, it's a bank where there are some nations that are depositors and then other nations who are borrowers. And initially that was set up so that um, the World Bank could loan out money uh, to war-torn Europe and Japan and help rebuild um, infrastructure. And it was really meant to do what private capital wasn't interested in doing. So you might have, uh, I don't know, an electric, project in a particular place that 
isn't appetizing for private capital for one reason or another. Like maybe it's not safe, you know, maybe it's not safe enough. It's too unstable. Maybe the it doesn't look like it's going to make a lot of profit. So so there might be no private actor willing to come in to finance that. So the World Bank was designed to do that. So um, for the first, um, I would say, you know, these are like, these institutions are both created in '44 at Bretton Woods in New Hampshire. They were they're headquartered in Washington D.C. And for their first uh, man, almost twenty years, that they, they they basically did function in this way. I mean, they they did function as mainly um, in in war torn. Uh, countries as they were rebuilding out of World War II. Um, the problem is that they transformed into something very different uh, sort of after 1960. Um, and that's what I talk about in my essay, is they they, they turned into something else. Essay's not the right word, man. Like What, what you wrote is incredible. It's... Uh... Oh, well, it'll, it'll be a book. It's coming out as a book. Right, <laughs> Q2. Good, because it needs to. It, it's an incredible book, and it needs to be. Thank and you. if you're listening, uh, Consensus Network, that needs to be translated into as many languages as possible because we need everybody to understand what's going on here. Uh, Lauren, do you want to say good night? Yes. Okay. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Uh, and so, so what I want to, I mean, I know you've been on uh, Pete's show and and Rob's show, uh, so. You know the, the the kind of stories already out there, um, but there's there's a few angles I I, I want to talk to you about when you were writing this piece. Sure. So this author's own shame. He did not know about the true nature of the global flow of funds and simply assumed that rich countries subsidized poor ones before embarking on the research for this project. That's that's a very honest line right there and when i went that line hit very hard for me when i read it the first time and when guy swan because i employ guy swan to read me articles as well thank you guy <laughs> yes <laughs> thank you guy guy did an awesome job we, we did. grateful for guy he did an absolutely awesome job and again when that that sentence came up it hit me because i feel the same as you i feel shame at at not having even considered what was going on you know i worked in financial markets i should have been mm -hmm. much closer to to seeing this well you like watch pop culture like avatar or um listened to people like joseph stiglitz or whatever or naomi klein over the years and i think most people you know may dismiss these things as lefty or um conspiratorial or whatever they'll they'll find a way to dismiss it and because of that it, it just kind of it, it, it you don't really take it that seriously this 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 concept um like you probably know that there's messy edges to globalization that's probably where it sort of lands like you probably know that that this whole process of integrating the world into one system is messy um, but I don't think you, you could ever 
really start to see the actual truth and the, the actual mechanism at work unless you really dig in deep. Um, and I think, I think in general, people, um, you know, reasonably believe that the World Bank is, is a somewhat charitable institution or at least somewhat altruistic one that is going in there to help with agriculture and um, uh, economic growth projects where, again, where private capital is not interested. And I, I, I wouldn't be as sanguine about that. I mean, I do think that most people think the IMF is like negative. They have like a negative op opinion about the IMF. But let's say you're a neoliberal uh, economist or you work in Washington or London, you know, maybe you just view it as a necessity that uh, we do need the IMF and that countries do run out of money and they need to get bailed out. And I think that's probably where most people stand is, is some some mix of these feelings and emotions and understandings. Like they they maybe view the IMF as a necessary evil and they maybe view the World Bank as more or less like a pretty good thing. Maybe it's ineffective or inefficient, but uh, I think that in general... Um, people do believe that they're that these weren't these institutions are meant to help, and that maybe maybe they just aren't run the right way, and and they're wasteful. Um, I I really don't think that most people understand that these institutions, uh, the outcome of these institutions has been to um, essentially drain resources from poor countries to rich countries. I, I really don't think that. Uh, I don't think that most I, I don't i think that virtually all employees of these institutions don't think don't realize that i think that's not something they they understand because they're, they're only looking at their little micro portfolio right <clears throat> which um which which uh, prevents them from seeing the big picture so um the reason i wanted to do this piece was that even if and i think bitcoiners especially are skeptical of these institutions but um you know they're not really in the lexicon like i think that you know, you could read most stuff in Bitcoin land or, or in, you know, assorted uh, discourse. And, you know, you'd probably think that they're not up to no good, but you wouldn't really know exactly what they're doing or why they were created or how they function. Right. Um, and I really didn't want to rely on con like sort of borderline fiction, you know, conspiracy uh text for the for for my understanding like that's the problem with stuff like um uh confessions of an economic hitman is that there's there's certainly some facts in there but it's also like basically there's a lot of it that that is unsubstantiated and and who knows um and the guy has his own little agenda you know and um you know i i just wanted to dig in and learn for myself and what i found was like super shocking um and and what resources were you were you turning to because i've read confessions uh, i think that's um a very very interesting book it opened my mind to all kinds of yeah um, i didn't read I, I read confessions like 20 years ago i didn't reread it right. for this i didn't want to rely on that i mm -hmm. uh i um well so first of all like i i think the people in the west or the north or whatever you want to say however we want to say it um that's really the target audience because like people in kenya and argentina and brazil they know exactly what the imf and world bank do mm -hmm. uh, and they're they're more or less they they they're like they understand but like people in creditor nations who are in the 
nations that are depositing funds into these institutions, running them and and profiting off of them in various ways. Like they don't really understand that. They don't think that way. So it's really it's really meant for a Western audience. It, it's I'm not here to like explain something to someone in Kenya. That being said, I've received a ton of really positive feedback from people from the global south for the article slash the essay slash the book. Um, but um, but it wasn't really meant for them because they they're the ones teaching me and I that they're the ones who understand the issue. They're the victims here. So it's really meant for the people who live in the perpetrator societies. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, well, I start, you know, it's interesting. It was started. My curiosity was peaked this summer. I I can't remember exactly why, but um, I just started to dig in a little bit. Uh, maybe it was back in July or August. Um, and I was like, hmm, I want to read like a good book about the IMF. Um, and I was just digging around and there just really isn't one. There's not There's not that much about written about the IMF in this way. There's very little. Um, and that got me really curious. I'm like, okay, that's weird. This institution is obviously very important. Why is, there, why is there not that much written about it, especially in the last few decades? Like what's going on here? So so I was like, screw it. I'm just going to dig in a little deeper. So I, and and I had an initial impression actually also that uh, the World Bank was like uh, more benign. I didn't realize they were like really sort of part of the same deal. I didn't understand that. Um, I thought I was really going to write, I, I set out to write about the IMF. I did not set out to write about the World Bank. And then as I started to do the research, I was like, oh no, they're like, they're like the same thing. I mean, they're the same effort, two hands of the same monster basically. So um, I, uh, I started with some like academic texts or like, let's say political science industry texts uh, that were like overviews of how these institutions work. And what's interesting about these, so for example, one might be, um, I have one here called the International Monetary Fund in the Global Economy, you know, written by some political scientist. And there's there's a ton of these books, um, not a ton, but there's a few of these books out there more like papers and essays. Like I would say that books constituted maybe, maybe a third of my research, uh, uh, JSTOR articles and essays and, and, and sort of shorter, shorter form journal, journal entries, a third, and then personal testimonies and interview a third. I think that's kind of essentially how I broke everything down in my research. Um, but, um, what you notice when you read these like books that, feel like they'd be assigned to you if you were like in college, like studying the IMF, um, is they're really like guarded. They're, they're um, very sheltered. They they don't talk about human pain and suffering at all. Like that they're only like high level analysis. They're only looking at like big, big sort of, they're only looking at numbers. Oh, the GDP of this country did that and the other. And they're not very, they're not deep analysis. Let's put it that way. They're surface level analysis. And I think that's the problem is that when, um, people go to college and study these things, or they enter into the world of international politics or diplomacy or development, they, they have a surface level understanding, again, a surface level understanding. And the surface level understanding of the IMF and the World Bank is that they were created for good reasons, as we've covered, right? Or at least re- reasonable reasons. And uh, yeah, they they may have been run poorly and maybe they've been inefficient and, and they have certainly some downsides and problems, but in general, like we need these institutions, like they're important. That, that, that would be like the surface level understanding. And um, there are lots of criticisms at the surface level, right? So there's, 
the Republican Party in the United States in the 90s, like wanted to abolish these institutions because they thought they were like wasteful of taxpayer money. Um, not because they actually understood what was going on, but but because they thought they were wasteful. There are um, many other surface level criticisms, again, like that they that I cover some of them in my my piece, but that they, they that they don't um, take into account the perspectives of the people in the countries that are borrowing as much as they should. That's a very valid criticism, but it's a kind of a surface level one um, that they uh, are poorly run or mismanaged. Um, I think that that's true in some, to some regard, but it masks like what's actually happening underneath. So I, I start to get into this and I start to start to write up in my mind and shape together a, a surface level understanding. And then I read this book that um, I, I, I found this book, I ordered it. It's from 1973, I believe. And this book just blew my mind. It, it was sort of like the red pill, uh, let's say, in the research. It, it's called The Debt Trap, and it's by Cheryl Payer. And uh, it's just incredible. Um, and uh, basically, um, I have it here. And uh, how do you spell her surname? P A Y E R. This is Payer. Right. Okay. And I'll just I'll read the first uh, couple paragraphs of the book. Incredible surname could... for her to to you know write <laughs> this book. No, and she's like a. Hardcore socialist, we'll put it that way. Right, um, okay. Totally. Um, listen to this. In the preface, um, <laughs> this is really funny. I have tried to produce this book in a manner consistent with the philosophy which underlies its discussion of the relations among peoples and nations. Therefore, I have rejected the invidious division of labor typical of the academic and publishing world, which assigns the more tedious tasks the persons who never enjoy the rewards of authorship. Both from necessity and from conviction, I have no research assistants, secretaries, or typists to thank. I did the work myself, nor did I have a spouse who would take charge of the time-consuming mechanics of living while I carried on the higher intellectual labor. So you can feel where she's coming from. And you know what? I think that that kind of, uh, that kind of side of socialism is interesting. Um, and it, it actually produces an incredible book. I totally disagree with her conclusions on what to do but her analysis is phenomenal so for example here's like the first uh uh couple paragraphs in indonesia brazil cambodia and argentina the military seized power from elected governments or popular rulers within a few weeks of the coup a mission from the imf arrives in each country to advise the new rulers on the reorganization of their economy in the philippines colombia and sri lanka Candidates for the post of president or prime minister campaign for election on a platform of opposition to the IMF. Months or even weeks after the election is won, the same leaders forget their campaign promises and come to terms with the IMF, having found it as impossible to live without it as to live with it. In communist Yugoslavia, the IMF is unobtrusively in attendance whenever major economic reforms are introduced, which make the country more open to Western trade and investment. In Laos and Cambodia, the IMF lends its prestige and expertise to prop up anti-communist governments and ensure West, continued Western control of Indochina. Um, you know, what is this powerful but publicity science institution? How can it exercise such a profound influence on the politics and policies of so many countries? 
And she just says the IMF is the most powerful supranational government in the world today. The resources it controls and its power to interfere in the internal affairs of borrowing nations give it the authority of which UN advocates can only dream. So I read that and I was like, oh man, this is going to be really fun. Um, this is going to be interesting because again, like a lot of the surface level analysis is so dry and it's like, it's just boring. Um, it takes out the, what's actually happening and it, it takes out the human impact and it, it, it airbrushes it out essentially. And I, I think that's partially done, you know, on purpose. Mm -hmm. So, so I read the debt trap and I'm like, oh my God, this is crazy. So I start digging in more there, reading her other books. She did 10 years later, she did a book on the world bank. 10 years after that, she did a book on like retrospective on like, I think the book was called Lent and Lost and it's about uh, credit lending in the third world. And then I look at some of the, you know, I start to like dig around and see who's, who's she reading, who's she citing, digging around to some other folks, um, just digging around to the uh, uh, kind of um, um, genre. I, I, I stumble across this book called, um, which was probably the second most important book I read to help color my views called um, Lords of Poverty mm -hmm. by Graham Hancock, who's who's now, you know, someone who ironically, when he was doing the research for Lords of Poverty um, in Ethiopia, he encounters this, I don't know the way he says it, but he basically, he encounters this like ruin from thousands of years ago that, that gets him interested in early civilizations. And that's obviously what he's famous for now. He's got the yeah. show on it's netflix and everything but he started it as someone who was investigating the corruption and uh, you know pro pro problems with aid and assistance so i read lords of poverty i read the debt trap and now i feel like i've been completely you know sort of red-pilled um i also try to read because they're both i mean Cher cheryl payer is like a very no-nonsense socialist and graham hancock's like a he's more kind of like perkins the guy who wrote Confessions of an economic. I mean, he's more just like a James Cameron lefty type person. Um, but then, you know, I try to I try to read some libertarian analysis too. I know that Milton Friedman and others, you know, didn't really didn't like these institutions. So I dig around. I found a really great book called um, "Perpetuating Poverty" by the Cato Institute that came out in the '90s. And then I read a lot of associated stuff that it was sort of like a 50 year retrospective around '94 which was 50 years of the IMF World Bank. And what was really interesting is that the libertarians came to the same conclusions uh, or rather the same analysis or had the same observations as the socialists. And that's, I think, when I was like, okay, there the must be something here. Um, and then I uh, I just keep digging. Seyfedin uh, has a great chapter in his book, The Fiat Standard, on what he calls the misery industry, which was yep. very helpful. And then there's just like, I mean, probably I read probably hundreds of Jason, like Sci-Hub is such a fabulous resource. This this person who created it, you should go donate Bitcoin to her. She's awesome. Because otherwise, all of these scholarly articles, which are useful from like the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, otherwise you'd never be able to read them. It's, it would cost thousands of dollars. Um, but you can just like paste the JSTOR link into Sci-Hub and you get it immediately. So Donate some Bitcoin to Sci Hub. Um, knowledge should be free. Um, so, you know, coloring in because there's like there'll be a country case study of the IMF in 
Tanzania from 1973 to 1970. I mean, just digging in that way, looking at each of these different countries and starting to see the whole spectrum. Um, and then there was there's a work of a guy named Jason Hickel, who's an anthropologist, and he's more recent. He's in the last decade. But like you can see that like what people like Payer and others started to look at in the 70s and 80s, I mean, it really has come true. I mean, Payer and Susan George and Hancock and the others, I think they they knew that by um by the end of the 80s, they knew they 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 were looking at it as it was happening, but they could start to see that the third world was subsidizing the north. Like they, they could see that the flow of funds in 1982 switched, like that was observable. So that there was a drain of funds from the south to north or the whatever, the south to the, the west, et cetera. Um, but that has just gotten so, I mean, at first it was like a few billion a year, 10, 20 billion a year. Today it's in the trillions. Mm -hmm. So that's that's where the more recent analysis is useful. Um, so you find yourself in this position of like, okay, so all the stuff that people said a long time ago, it's actually worse than they could have possibly imagined. Why, why is there no one talking about it today? It was just bizarre. Like there's like, there was a lot of good stuff again written in the 80s and 90s. And ever since then, it's like, I mean, it, there's just not a whole lot of debate about these institutions and they, they've gotten bigger. Like, um, you know, it, it's interesting, like the, the real size of the lending um, really exploded in the 80s. But then in the 90s, it was even bigger. So like the the bailouts for the Asian financial crisis or the Mexican peso crisis in the 90s like dwarfed the bailouts of Mexico and other countries in Latin America in, in the 80s. And the um, bailouts of Europe, of Southern European countries in the 2010s, the European debt crisis, those dwarfed the the loans that were given out in the 90s. And then the COVID lockdown loans were even bigger. So, so each time you have this new crisis happen, the lending capacity expands of these institutions. So the INF is now a trillion dollar institution and the World Bank has like 300 billion plus dollars of loans across like whatever, how many countries. Um, it's, it's pretty astonishing. So um, there's just so many different layers to it. So... I start seeing that and that really blows me away. Like, I'm like, wow, okay. So you have exponential debt going up and then you have like the total amount of flow, the funds going in the other way. So that was like one layer of understanding that was interesting. And then the agricultural piece was like very important. Um, just understand, or, or the, and the resource piece, like understanding like, well, it's not, it's not just simply that these institutions were lending and then getting paid back Prince P and I, like, it's not just that they were making money in this sort of simple way, uh, as a bank would, um, it's not just that they were taking advantage of the cancel on effect, like the spread where they would borrow money more cheaply from the United States or from American banks and then loan it out, or, or they would take petrodollars that were earned by the Saudis or whatever as deposits. And then they would loan them out to the third world. It's not, it's not just that they were like making money on the spread or that they were basically being bankers it's that they were doing something very specific when they would loan the money out they were there this was there was conditionality it was either in the world bank's case project or sector specific like it was like for a thing that like 
the World Bank got to decide what it wanted. Um, or in the INF's case, it was something called structural adjustment. So there'd be like a laundry list of things that the country had to do to qualify for the money. So it's not just that you have this exponential rise in debt, independency, like that'd be bad enough. But what was, was super sinister is that the creditors are able to impose all these conditions on these countries and to like essentially change them to make what we need, like to be simple about it. Like, so you had a over 50, 60 year time period, you had essentially a, you know, political, economic, agricultural reprogramming of these societies away from uh, self-sovereignty, consumption, feeding themselves, um, and, you know, and being poor. Let's not be, let's be clear about this. They were, most of these countries were very, very poor in the tropics, but, but they were independent. And then, you know, a transformation, meaning like the communities were independent. I mean, obviously they were, they were part of colonialism, et cetera, but like at a micro level, these people were, they could at least grow their own food and stuff. Um, and then the, through the policies of the IMF and World Bank today, a lot of these communities are very, st still very poor. Okay. Relatively speaking. Um, but they can't grow their own food. They have to buy it. And then the, the current, the, like the price of that stuff, is not denominated in their own local fiat currency. It's denominated in the dollar. So this is where you start to see how 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 cruel it is um, that that these tropical regions were um, re-engineered so that they needed to import food instead of be able to grow it themselves. So, for example, the African continent imports eighty five percent of its food, which is completely outrageous, yeah. um, and 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 was was is an outcome of these policies. So you had. What used to be done through straightforward imperialism, where um, the British or Spanish or whoever, they would come in and steal a bunch of resources and enslave the population, or at least like make them work for very little. That was that's like a faux pas now, thankfully. That's like not acceptable, generally speaking. I mean, you have um country's still trying to do that in certain ways but like that's generally like looked down upon so that was sort of phased out and what took its place was like using instead of a, a gun you had a debt as the weapon okay so but but with the same like outcome like the outcome of imperialism was just to get cheap inputs for western society the outcome of imperialism was to get cheap spices and minerals and timber and uranium to power western civilization uh that was the that was part a of the goal the second part was to get the cheap labor right so you had the cheap goods and the cheap labor as inputs to our economy and that allowed our economy to like basically run artificially efficiently um if we didn't have all of the inputs from the periphery of the world in the core like we would be much poorer and and less advanced i not i don't want to take away anything from western civilization in terms of the rights and freedoms and liberties that we have, but we just need to be honest. Like that's only half the story. The other half of the story is that we looted all like half, you know, 80% of the world for centuries. Um, and, and this is just like the latest chapter in that. So that's just very important to understand. It's all about getting access to those cheap inputs of goods and labor. And we used to do it through straightforward imperialism. And today we do it through debt. 
led by the IMF World Bank. You know, they're not the only one game in town. There's lots of other institutions that I didn't cover. The CCP, China's trying to copy it for their own aims. There's, there's, there's other stuff happening. But generally speaking, the IMF and World Bank have been the biggest players in this game. Um, and and they have been very, very successful. And, and then I think that's where the surface level criticisms don't make, don't like, it, nothing they do has been a mistake. It's not a mistake that um, the flow of resources has been from poor countries to rich countries since 1982. That's not a mistake. That's not a, whoops. No, that's like an intentional <laughs> outcome of these policies. The intentional the outcome of these policies is to drain resources from poor countries to make them dependent on us. It, it's yeah. What what's crazy to me still is you can have you know I'm I'm from the UK. We have British family members. We have older um, friends um, in in the UK. So when we go visit, uh, we we can have these conversations, very surface level conversations like you'd expect. But when you bring up the idea that you know colonialism was bad imperialism was bad like what happened when the british you can use india as a perfect example you try and explain to a 75 year old person like you do realize we didn't like they're, they're so brainwashed into believing that what we did we built the railways if it weren't for us they wouldn't have the railways in india and they they still believe that yeah, what do you think those we, railways were doing? Right, no, but, it, but that's, exactly. that's actually very important, though. No, but they think the railways were like the railways were designed so that the British Empire could extract goods and resources from India. They weren't Absolutely. designed to like empower the local population. Um, but the British know, like people, people still believe that that's what they've been told, Alex. That's that's the whole brainwashing thing. Well, and they and, still and, believe you know, that. It's, the, the, the trick is that there's it's not black and white, like. Yes, there are things that the British left behind that are positive, but these countries, whatever progress these countries have had since have been in spite of colonialism, not because of it. Mm -hmm. The idea that some people still say that colonialism wasn't bad or whatever is, is totally outrageous. I mean, the amount of resources stolen by the British in India is hard to measure. Some have tried to measure it, but I mean, it's, it's in the many, many trillions of dollars of goods and resources. And I mean, if you just look at, uh, there's a great book that I, that I um, found that is worth reading um, called Capital and Imperialism. And they do like, uh, they, they try to actually do um, a, an accounting of this. And the sums are just staggering in terms of what was stolen from India. I mean, you can imagine how powerful India would be if it hadn't been colonized by the British for so long. Mm -hmm. And, you know, comparatively, how, how much poorer Britain would be. I mean, Britain Britain and France would be, they would be like Croatia or something. I mean, they wouldn't be world empires. They'd be fine. They'd be wealthy countries. They'd be above average wealthy countries. They would not be G5 countries without imperialism. There's no way. So, and by the same extent, India would be a G5 country right. as opposed to a developing poor nation. Like, it's like really... The idea that pe that that people can't see this is so staggering to me, mm -hmm. um, or even just even you talk about Churchill's legacy. Like, yes, he's celebrated rightly for uh, helping to defeat Hitler, fair, but he also committed essentially genocide in India, like during the war, 
and Keynes was helping him. So Keynes was designing the policy that would starve all these people in the Bay of Bengal. Um, and the British took all that stuff and used it for the war effort, leaving people to start millions to starve. So this is this is covered in that book, mm -hmm. Capital Imperialism. It's the first book that actually asserts that Keynes was like at fault for killing millions of people, which is pretty staggering, especially because it's a lefty book. It's a left. It's a book comes from the left, but it really goes after him. Um, it's interesting. But anyway, um, I think that uh, we just don't think about the basics. Like, I feel like uh, you look at you think about balance. Balance sheets are actually helpful to think about when you when you when you're thinking about like the West and the borrower or the creditor and the borrower nation, right? Um, and this is this is this is equally applicable for bilateral aid and assistance. So, like, it's if, let's say Britain's just dealing with Bangladesh one on one, mm -hmm. or or through a multilateral agency like the UN, like like the World Bank or whatever, or the IMF or whatever. But what will happen is that, like, um, let's say Britain will um, lend three hundred million dollars to. Bangladesh for uh, shrimp farming or for a hydroelectric dam or something like that. Um, or maybe, maybe, maybe for a resource extraction project. So what people, people just think about it in a balance sheet term. Okay. So um, Britain has lent this, it takes a couple of years, but let's say Britain lends the capital. Okay. So now, Bangladesh has um, 300 million, we'll say dollars worth of, of capital. Now, what do they do with that capital? So this is the important part. So, so the rulers definitely like always usually skim off the top a little, like for their own personal corruption, that which ranges from like a little to like a lot, like Mobutu and Zaire would take 20%. Like, so, I mean, we'll see. But the crazy part is like, so this country has borrowed 300 million. It immediately all goes right back to Britain because what happens is the Bangladeshis hire British companies to 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 um to set up everything. So the flow of funds goes from uh so Britain lends out 300 million and then the British economy nets back almost 300 million. So 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 they're even okay at this point. So the British economy is is like basically been paid back, okay? Meanwhile, the Bangladesh still owes 300 million plus interest. So, so over the coming 30 years, they're going to end up paying back probably closer to five or 600 million total uh, to, to, to Britain. So you're talking about, it's called a double, this is called a double loan. This is, so, you know, you're talking about uh, Britain sort of doubling its money um, and getting to install something in this country where they get like, total access so for example let's say they set up like a mining operation so usually historically these operations were like 90 to 95 percent controlled by foreign corporations in terms of the profits so as the mining operation was running virtually all of it was benefiting them as well five to ten percent would go to the local dictator or oligarchy zero percent would go to the people so the people pay the price. The people pay the cost. The people are going to be the ones who pay principal plus interest for this operation. Uh, they pay to build it. They pay to run it. They pay out of their 
uh, out of their life economic lifeblood. They pay out of their wages and future wages through borrowing and through devaluation. This is like they pay the cost and the local dictator benefits, obviously, and the foreigners benefit. And this is what development is like. This is what development largely has been. And this is why you have all these instances of countries. Um, this helps explain the drain. First of all, it helps explain how how is it possible that you could have all this lending happening to these poor countries, but the, the flows come in the other way. Like, how is that possible that in 2012, you had a trillion dollars going from the north to the south and you had three trillion coming back? How does that make any sense? This partially explains that. Um, but what also helps explain it, um, it, it is that uh, the um, the the uh, the re you know the resource flow is 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 one thing, but the resources themselves are the other. So not only do you get the double loan, right, of the value, but you also get all the resources themselves. So you, so you get the cheap labor and the cheap goods, except you don't have to use a gun. You just have to mm -hmm. use paperwork. So that's that's kind of like what's happening here with like development. And then on top of that, to go even deeper, what's happening is that economy is being re-engineered and reprogrammed to do shrimp farming or something mm -hmm. or, you know, something that is not building value locally. It, this, these are usually extractive industries or um, meaning drawing down on non-renewable resources or they are um, industries built to create a cash crop that can't be eaten or consumed locally. So whether that's like very expensive shrimp, whether that's cocoa or palm oil or rubber or cotton or coffee or tea or whatever, this, this is largely the legacy of agriculture across the third world and the tropics is stuff like that where the local person who's growing it, it's not like they're going to eat the coffee. They can't eat the coffee. They have to go get rice and meat and they can't. So you have all these farmers who used to grow stuff, rice, they used to cattle, they used to sorghum, wherever they would grow stuff that they could sustain themselves on. They don't do that anymore. They basically, they work to make a smaller and smaller amount of money in real terms to grow something for us to eat. And then they have to buy like Doritos at the whatever or McDonald's at the, you know, this is, this is crazy. This is what happens. And this is the part, this is the other part that I had highlighted that I wanted to talk to you about because you bring this up in Mexico and you use Mexico as a perfect example of what you're talking about here. And I'll just read one paragraph quickly. Uh, as a as a result of structural adjustment, which is what the IMF do, right? This is one of their conditions of loaning the money that they have to structurally readjust. Uh, Mexican real wages declined in the 1980s by more than 75%. In 1986, about 70% of lower-income Mexicans had virtually stopped eating rice, eggs, fruit, vegetables, and milk. Never mind meat or fish. And this was going on at a time when their government was paying $27 million per day or $18,750 per minute in interest repayments. I mean, this is beyond fucked up. Like that, that's like, you know, that is. Well, you so... had what, what you had, what you had is like for a lot of these nations, 
and this this is true of Nigeria today, or and it's something I I um I just read about the other day. You have like the national re revenue of a country, of like the entire economic lifeblood of millions of people, or or hundreds of millions of people in the case of Nigeria. Eighty percent of it is going to go to debt service in 2021, 2022. That's insane. I mean, it's not going to improve the lives of the people or whatever. It's just going to debt service, um, financialization of the world economy. This is what it looks like. So in the Philippines, you had, and the odious debt part is key. Like, again, these are dictators largely borrowing that have just, uh, you disagree with me, I'm going to shoot you. This isn't like we can even have a debate. So Ferdinand Marcos was borrowing and borrowing and borrowing. And then when he finally got ousted in the mid 80s in the Philippines, it's not like the IMF and World Bank were like going to uh, say, OK, it's cool. You don't need to pay us back anymore. No, that's not the case. They're creatures of the banks who are their the creditors. So they they they're <laughs> no. So so the Philippines ends up having to pay 40 to 50 percent of its national revenue to pay back the Marcos loans for like years and years and years. So what ends up happening in in especially in the 80s, but but like over various time frames ever since the 60s, is that you had 10 to 15 years at a time where real incomes per capita were declining. Okay. Even though the population was growing. So just to think about that quite simply, what that means for the humans. I mean, who are in there. Like it means that the amount of hours they have to work to get a thousand calories of rice or whatever is um sort of opposite of like what we would think about in in um with like uh technology deflation or something like that like like people are working more for the same amount as opposed to working less for the same amount um this is the reality of the world for so many people and it's happening right now like you're going to start seeing that right now like stuff's getting more and more expensive bread i mean the art Articles, if you go out and read about like what it's like for the average poor person in Egypt right now or in Pakistan right now or in Ghana right now, it's absolutely heartbreaking. I mean, they have to they're working twice as hard for half as much bread. OK, this is kind of what you're you're looking at. And these are all structurally adjusted countries like that's what happens like they they, they have they come in and they get squeezed. So it's uh, truly sad. Yeah. There was another stat in there. I can't find it, and uh, I just—I uh, won't be able to do it justice off the top of my head. But you were talking about mm -hmm. if if these countries were just able to grow their own food rather than export it, they would be able to like feed themselves and have God knows how much surplus. But because they are so in debt, not only are they in debt, and they're you know that they've they've got to be sending the money out, but they've got to be exporting the raw materials as well. It, it's yeah, like the there's, double there's, whammy. Um... Yeah, uh, I can find it. Um, it's let's see. Yeah, here. So there's a testimony that this guy George Aite gave in the mid '90s, and he said if Africa were able to feed itself, it could save nearly 15 billion at wastes on food imports. So this may be compared to the 17 billion Africa received in foreign aid, like in right. a given year in the 90s. In other words, you know, if Africa grew its own food, it wouldn't need foreign aid. But if that were to happen, then poor countries wouldn't be buying billions of dollars of food from rich countries whose economies would shrink as a result. So we resist any change. But it's like, 
the 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 other i mean there's a lot here and that's why you, that's why it needs to be a book link thing is there's so many layers to it but another big piece that i really started to learn about was the double standard here like these western nations we're like highly centrally planned we have tariffs and subsidies and all kinds of stuff to protect our economies that are not free market instruments mm -hmm. this is not some like free market i mean this is i mean i understand why people call the u.s or great britain capitalist powers i i, I get that i understand what that means um but it's not fully accurate because our economies are like like certainly compared to the soviet union they are yeah sure capitalist but like but that's not a helpful term really because it, it belies and it hides and it obfuscates a very important thing, which is that these capitalist powers, quote unquote, uh, are enormously centrally planned and they, they, they subsidize agriculture to a high degree and they, they impose massive tariffs on poor countries. So like you want to sell us your peanuts? Great. We're going to charge you whatever much, you know, some sort of surcharge on that. Right. So the whole world trade economy is totally centrally planned. There's no free market. It's it's not like we live in some Adam Smith world where, oh, this country's got comparative advantage here, so it's going to do that. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. Like It's all sort of imposed by violence and force. Um, this is not – everything in the 20th century economically is like this. Like That's why gold is no longer used as a currency. It's not because like, oh, it couldn't like fulfill the needs of the free market i mean that's just nonsense like you know maybe it couldn't but that's not the reason why it was we don't use it anymore we don't use it anymore because it was taken away from us like this is you know it, it, it's not that west africa can't grow agriculture competitively it's that they're prevented from doing so um so so you start to see a lot of that and you start to see that uh if you know if we could only just um, if we just removed the tariffs and subsidies in the EU and the United States on agriculture, there would need there there would be no need for foreign aid anymore. There'd be no need, no need at all. But we won't do that because then we'd no longer be sovereign agriculturally. So that's the brutal reality of the world. Ah. Uh. I just want to touch on on one last thing before we talk about how Bitcoin fixes all of this. And we, we kind of touched on it to, at the beginning there. Um, the people that work within these institutions, and I'm going to use a uh, a standout example in Christine Lagarde, who was the head of the IMF at one point, and then uh, lost her job because she was found to be uh, found guilty of embezzling money. Um, into a, the personal account of one of Sarkozy's aides. And when she was found guilty, she was not fined and she was not sent to prison. Uh, yeah. She might have lost her job in air quotes, but it now ends up as a head of the European Central Bank. Now, some, my question is, you know, well, what's the quote? Do not apply uh, to malice what could be, um, you know, um, uh, incompetence. But the people at that level, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. You know, no, but what... it's up. It's the opposite, though. Like that's what I'm saying. Go on, go ahead. Right. No, it's, it's, it's not incompetence. It is. It is right. I mean, you want to call it malice, but it's it's self it's it's self interest. You know, it's planned. They know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. 
And it's absolutely shocking. And yeah. this is so, okay, right. Bitcoin fixes this. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know if it fixes it, but it definitely uh, helps prevent the extreme inequity here. Like it's, um, uh, we what we what we know is that Bitcoin allows people to escape from these economies into a twenty four seven unstoppable market where they can participate and sell goods and services and be their own bank and this is a massive upgrade and very helpful for individuals that and this is something that people in the 2000s and the 90s and the 80s and 70s just didn't have they had no way of escaping their local fiat so this is big but we don't know what the impact is going to be like at the na nation state level like we're just not sure we we do know that this system though um of these like infinite bailouts and this ever increasing sovereign debt bubble is is not possible in a in a Bitcoin standard. Like it 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 gets arrested. It gets it gets limited in, in certain ways. Um, basically, what ends up happening probably is that you know these institutions resist change, but eventually they're going to start realizing that like these loans are not getting paid back, um, and and they're not going to have the ability to just print more reserve currency to issue new loans. That's not going to that. that in a Bitcoin standard, that's not going to work. Like, who's going to just give you their Bitcoin to do that? It's not not, not happening. So, so I think that the role of these institutions shrinks, and maybe we could still have an IMF and a World Bank or something like them in a Bitcoin standard. I mean, that's possible if if the major nations of the world wanted to pool some resources together to to like be there as an emergency credit line, uh, or 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 to 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 fund infrastructure that private capital wasn't interested in funding it, that that that's entirely possible i mean it would rely entirely on uh on altruism i don't i don't think that this would necessarily be a profit making enterprise anymore um uh but it might be important and they might do it but like they'd have to be super prudent and they'd have to have skin in the game in these in these in these projects that are built like they're not currently it's like oh we have this amount of fiat to spend how can we spend it as fast and as possible like they're not interested in the sustainability of these projects. If if it was in a Bitcoin standard, I think there'd be yeah, like oh well, is this actually going to work? Like, or is, is it going to be sustainable? Like that 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 might be interesting or, or useful. The other thing is with regard to the IMF. Yeah, I mean there would only be so much it could do, and then a, a country would eventually have to just they would just it would go bankrupt, and and bankruptcy is an important part of capitalism. And that's really important, not because like, like there's a short term and long term. Short term, yes, it sucks that people starve. Like this is horrible. Um, but they're gonna they're, like the the problem is that you 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 end up in this endless loop of more debt and more debt and more debt and more debt, and that just ends up hollowing out the country over time. So. The thing about a bankruptcy is it would relieve the population from needing to pay back the debt that that was incurred on their behalf. So the population may not get an immediate capital infusion now, uh, but the population would no longer be be responsible for the debt service that often takes up 40 to 80 percent of their national GDP or whatever. So that's kind of how it would go. I mean, my sense is this this is going to be somewhat gradual if this does happen in the future, but 
I think you have like a winding down of this crazy sovereign debt bubble and you, you have the system change in a way. Uh, but it won't be like pretty, it'll be awful. I mean, but there's no like non awful way forward. Like it's like people in the West are so enormously privileged. Like we were like, well, what, what would end of times look like for people in Britain and the United States? I mean, it would look like whatever's happening in like any number of countries right now, like in any number of countries right now, uh, no national services work. You have internet blackouts, power blackouts. No one can get any electricity or food. There's riots. There's a fascist military government. That That's just like day to day for billions of people. And yet, if that were to happen in Britain or the United States, people would lose their minds, right? Like it would be like, oh my God, the end of times is here or whatever. It's like the end of times is here and it has been here for billions of people for decades. Like this is not like, it's just crazy to me. So, I mean, that's, that's what ends up happening. It's, it's a brutal transition, but you, you, you can't get off the weapon and the drug of debt without some sort of tr rough transition. It just is what it is. I mean, you either die. I mean, what's, what's happening is like death, like basically as real GDP per capita goes down, even though the, the population is going up and any sort of like spending on education or healthcare is slashed and any sort of subsidies on basic goods and services is slashed, people die. Like people die, like tens of millions of people die or whatever. And that's just not accounted for anywhere. Um, so that's what happens if you just keep pushing the Ponzi fiat Ponzi forward is you have stuff like that happening on a rolling basis. That's like invisible. Like nobody know nobody's doing the accounting on that. Um, but that's the reality. That's the, that's the outcome of our current system, which is brutal. Do you get the sense that another country or a few countries out there might be colluding to try and um, escape them, escape from these debts and, and you know, taking a side with glance at, El Salvador and Bukele and what they've um, what they've been doing and stacking Bitcoin onto their sovereign balance sheets. I mean, is yeah, there a I sense mean, that's going on? Maybe I I'm not I'm not I mean look, I think that we start with the individual, then we move up from there. Um I still think that that's where the focus should be is on helping the individual escape. I I don't know how it's going to work with nation state adoption. It's it's not clear. Um, like, and it's not going to be like straightforward. Like whatever the nation of El Salvador has accomplished at a macroeconomic level um, since June of 2021, is quite obviously in spite of Bitcoin, like for the obvious fact that Bitcoin is worth whatever it is, 30 or 40% less than it was then. Or, or in some cases, I mean, they've been, he claims they've been, I mean, there's no proof, honestly, that he's got any of this Bitcoin. There's none whatsoever. He's provided no proof at all. He could just be making it up. Um, some people have actually alleged that, that they didn't buy any Bitcoin at all. And he's just making all this up. But even if he did, he was buying a lot of this Bitcoin at 50K, 60K, 40K. Like, so they just paid off 
some loans. Bitcoin obviously had nothing to do with that ability mm -hmm. to do that. Like that's mm -hmm. just because they were doing well in some other capacity. The total amount of Bitcoin they they claim to own versus their economy is very small. Um, and it has gone down a lot in value since he bought it. So I, I, I you know, I, I think that drawing any lessons from El Salvador today doesn't make any sense. I think over a decade, okay, that gets interesting, right? So if countries do actually start stacking over time and investing in mining and things like that, uh, yeah, it could it could absolutely relieve them of uh, you know of, of needing to participate so much in this exploitative system, a hundred percent. But I just think it would be I don't think it's wise to draw any lessons from El Salvador yet because whatever's happening there is not. I mean, Bitcoin is not powering whatever's happening there. Um, and we should ask for some proof that the guys actually bought Bitcoin. <laughs> like it's not even. <laughs> It's not even clear he's stacking. Uh, who knows? Yeah. Well, I who who does know? And like you say, it, it's too soon to judge and only time will tell. Mm -hmm. Talking of time, I've looked at the time and I know you are pushed for time. So we will wrap it up. But I've got to ask you the final question as usual. Sure. If you had one orange pill left to give to somebody, who would you give it to and why? Does it work? Is it like we're guaranteed to work? Oh, it's guaranteed. It's a guaranteed <laughs> orange pill. It's got the Alex Gladstein seal of approval on it. I mean, I mean, it would have to be someone enormously influential and to stay on topic with our theme of the day, it would have to be somebody who's enormously influential in the area of development and assistance and humanitarianism. So it's got to be Bill Gates. I mean, if Bill Gates gets orange pilled, I mean, can you imagine uh, the changes that would happen through them? He gives away billions of dollars a year, but he also just influences probably hundreds of billions of dollars a year. And if he can, you know, if if the amount of wasteful projects that he he supports that can be ended and directed towards Bitcoin centric projects, I mean, can you imagine the impact on the world? So, um. I think he's eventually going to get it or his descendants or somebody over there is going to get it eventually. And and that'll be a good day um, because it just really aligns with everything they're trying to do over there, but they just don't get it yet. But uh, yeah, I think that would be the, the orange pill of the day. All right. I love it. It'd be nice to see as well if somebody at the IMF uh, were to take it and what do you call them? The, the adjusted, but, that, but then that, yeah, well, they, they have to. Adjust. I mean, the funny thing is, none of these Western countries have ever had to adjust themselves, right? They adjust <laughs> these other countries. Well, I was, I that, was thinking that would just no, that would result in if someone got orange pill at the at the IMF World Bank, they would. I mean, they might be on suicide watch, man. I mean, that, that would be brutal. <laughs> uh, may, may, I think they would at best they would just quit the job. I, I don't, I don't think you're seeing any like internal reform there. Um, It'd be nice to so have I think a better. Trojan horse in there, wouldn't it? That was loaning out hundreds of millions or billions of dollars to these, uh, in air quotes, third world developing nations for readjusting uh, their economy to Bitcoin mining. And that, that'd be nice. Uh, and yeah, they get they to keep the spoils, in... but the, the, the country they would, they would, the spoils. They would sooner adopt Ripple or something than, than do that. So um, we're, we're far away from that. But anyway, thanks for having me on today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Alex. Great to see you. Look mm -hmm. forward to seeing you at one of the conferences this year, man. Yep. All right. Take, take care. care. Bye.
Well, there you go, guys. Another rip with Alex Gladstein. This is the third time he's been on the show, so please go back and listen to the, the first two as well because they are very different conversations. Obviously, he had not written this piece by uh, uh, by the time that we first recorded, but we did go deep into like humanitarian uh, efforts around the world and what Bitcoin means to to these kind of nations and, and these kind of people that are trapped under these systems that they're completely inescapable completely inescapable if you have a dictator at the helm or somebody that is easily greased with uh, the money gun and you have the invisible hand it's not even that invisible they're right there they're right there out in the open the IMF and the World Bank that come in and just muddy the waters and you know it's it's truly ah you can get to a very dark place if you really sit there and think about it and read up on it uh these these articles and these books uh are very 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 important a very important piece of the puzzle for you to learn about as we are all trying to piece this huge jigsaw puzzle together because you know, making the same mistakes again, ever going centralized again, will be a very, very dark and bad idea. Decentralization is the way, unconfiscatable money is the way, and Bitcoin fixes this and all the things that we have just discussed. That's what we're here for. This is what this journey is about. Keep learning, sharing, doing whatever you're doing, building communities. That's one thing. For 2023 and beyond, the social layer of Bitcoin, I know I keep talking about it. And yes, I have a vested interest in Orange Pill App. That is because after lockdown, I came out and I started hitting the conferences. And oh my God, I just, the U-turn that had on my physiology is, you cannot put your finger on it. So please, guys, you know, don't take this lightly. Stop being that guy, that lonely guy that's sitting in the corner of the pub talking about Bitcoin to anyone that will listen and then just shake their head at you and walk away because you're some crazy conspiracy theorist. Get a ticket to one of the conferences. Miami is coming up. Prague is going to be in June. Liberty in Our Lifetime is a parallel structures uh, conference put on by Free Private Cities in October. All of these things are very, very accessible. And if you can't make all of them, it doesn't matter. Just make one. You will find your people. I guarantee you. Or download Orange Pill app. Find, just download it. Go to the website because you can pay with Bitcoin. Go to the website. Download Orange Pill app. Pay via Lightning and just give it a run. Is there a pleb that lives 50 miles away from you that you can go and meet for a coffee or a beer 25 miles in between you? This is what it's about. We've got to go. We have to go. That's the end of the music. I've not even shielded the show sponsors. If you want discounts on these conferences, get to the links in the show notes. Use the code BITTEN and that will get you a discount. If you want to start taking Bitcoin a little bit more seriously, if you haven't got yourself a hardware wallet or a signing device, now's the time. Do not leave it to chance. Get over to shiftcrypto.ch forward slash BITTEN. Use the code BITTEN. And that will get you a 5% discount on the Bitbox 02. 
And then you know where to stack. Swan Bitcoin have you guys so covered in the US. It's unbelievable. There's there's only like, just get there. Go check them out. Swanbitcoin.com forward slash Bitten. Go and see what they offer. They've got the IRAs. They've got the smash buys. They've got the DCAs. They have the education. They've got a great team. They've got so many awesome Bitcoiners on that team. And they're running the Pacific Bitcoin Conference as well at uh, towards the end of this year. So you can uh, use code Bitten, I think. Just check it out. See if you can see if you can get a discount. See if that works. Let me know if it doesn't. Uh, so much more to talk about. Such little time. Uh, Relay.ch. You know what they're doing. I hope Julian's going to come on the show soon. They've just been funded. This thing is never ever going to stop. Bitcoin is inevitable. Coin Corner. Love what you're doing. And Wasabi Wallet. If you want to up your privacy game. Hodl Hodl, have you covered for the KYC free Satoshi's global peer-to-peer trading platform? And they have one of the coolest locations for a conference in Europe. In Riga, in Latvia, if you've never been, make this the first time. Get out there. There will be no discounts. There will be no bitten codes. There will be no price hikes. There will be no tomfoolery. Just get to the website, hodlhodl.com, find out, or hit the link in the show notes, find out when they're going to throw the uh, the Baltic Honey Badger, and just get some tickets and book an Airbnb, and I'll see you there. I'm going to stop rambling. Take care, guys. Thank you for listening. I'll catch you on the next show.